Hello, and welcome to All the Gospel, a sermon podcast from Kirksville Assembly of God. We are happy to have you as a part of our listening community. Thank you for joining us as we explore the Word together. Uh, there was an article, the Assemblies of God puts out a, a, a magazine, I guess, once a quarter. It's called Influence. The letter from the editor had a, a little article entitled, The Assemblies of Good. The Assemblies of Good. It's a typo on our name, but if God is good, then we should be good. If God is good, we should be good. Uh, there's a little amen to that. We'll be in Genesis 20 today. So you could turn there. This is part nine of the Summer Taurus series. I'm thinking there's going to be three more. We'll see how that goes. But last week we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and we kind of we left Lot on his way to Zoar, or he's in Zoar, presumably, and we left Abraham standing on a hill. Some of you read on to the very next verse, and things got weird. Uh, so we've got to read on. We want to know what happened to Lot, what happened to Abraham after this episode in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I think all the kids went to children's church. I would definitely... Uh, recommend that uh, viewer discretion is advised today uh audience discretion is advised and it just starts out pretty intense so um i try not to pull any punches when i preach i think that uh, god's word is pretty clear um already so i just go with it uh, this is just the next part uh so we left off in chapter 19 verse 30 so if you would turn there uh, we'll pick it up there, and we're going to talk this morning about a difficult topic, something um, we don't like to think about, but the problem of generational sin, the problem of generational sin, and we're going to talk about that, and we'll talk about how to break it, so we're not going to leave anybody under a curse this morning, never never the plan. So before we dive in, let's pray. God, we know your word is powerful. God, we know that Thousands of years ago, you inspired Moses to, to put these stories down on, on parchment, on papyrus, God. And here we are, thousands of years later, spending our time, dedicating time to study these words. There's wisdom and truth. There is warning as well in these words. And we pray, God, that you minister to our hearts through your Holy Spirit today. Be with us no matter where we are in our walk with you. Calm our nerves and... Set our fears aside, Lord, as we dive into your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So chapter 19, verse 30, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills. I actually circled this in my Bible. Lot was supposed to go to the hills, like, immediately. That's where the angels had told him to go. Go to the hills. He said, can't I go to Zoar? And they said, okay, fine, go to Zoar. Then he winds up in the hills anyway. That's a predicament. That's a problem. It's not even the main problem, but it's like, Lot, you should have just gone there in the first place. Um, but there's no time. But he's supposed to be in the hills. He winds up going to the hills later with his two daughters, not his wife because she was turned into a pillar of salt. I imagine they did not like cult her, cart her around on a dolly anywhere, but rather just left her a pillar of salt. Like, oh, there's mom, salt pillar mom. So just his two daughters. I think this is part of the problem here. 
For he was afraid to live in Zoar. He, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Because the Bible may pull a punch there. There's no one to impregnate us on the entire earth because we live in this cave with just our dad, and that's the entire earth, I guess. So verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine also tonight. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. What is even happening in this story? This is like, what? Could have skipped this part, you know, God, if there's a editorial process We'd be cool if you just skipped this part. Just leave this. But we can't. We didn't. He didn't want to. It's here, so let's look at it. Definitely, without question, this is not one of those portions you turn to when you just like, God, what should I do with my life? And you open to Genesis 19.30 and you point to this verse. Not what the Bible is to be used for. Do not do such a crazy thing. You could wind up here and be in all kinds of troubles. The daughters definitely violate Lot. There is no question that this is a violation. But the, quest, the question I had was, why? And there's all kinds of low-hanging fruit. We'd be like, don't drink wine. I think, yeah, don't drink wine. You could pull that from this if you want to. But I think there's something deeper going on here. They wanted to, and it said it a couple times, preserve offspring. Preserve offspring. According to, they said at one time, the manner of all the earth. So we'll talk about preserve offspring in a second. The manner of all the earth. The Greek here, pardon my Greek pronunciation, is Derek Cole Eris. Derek Cole Eris. The way, the manner of all the earth. It's used, the best I could find out, two other times in the Bible. Uh, once in Kings, when David is talking about him going to die, and I think it was Joshua. Uh, I didn't have it in my notes here, because I wasn't supposed to say that, but I did. Um, so it, it means to die in both of those cases. David is on his deathbed saying, I'm about to go in the manner of all of the earth. I'm going to die. The other place in Joshua, Joshua says, or I think Moses says it to Joshua, I'm about to go the manner of all the earth. I'm about to die. But here it is not on the surface that. It's more talking about... Um, Becoming pregnant, reproducing, having sex. So um, the manner of all the earth. But when you look at it that way, the manner of all the earth or the way of the world, the way of the world. And I think this is part of the thing here because in the last chapter, it talked about the way of Yahweh, the way of Yahweh. And what we have here is not the way of Yahweh. 
in no way is this okay. This is not like an example for how you should live your life or options for what you could do with your life. Don't do this. But it's a way of the world, a way of the world. It's not the way of Yahweh. So the daughters chose to walk in the way of the world. They took matters into their own hands. But this story is more complicated than just this one thing. We actually see a pattern of sin at work here. Lack of trust in God's will, taking, or lack of trust in God's plan, taking matters of uh, offspring, which has been a theme since like Genesis 3, that there will be an offspring, the offspring theme again into their own hands, kind of like we saw with Abram and Hagar. The daughters take that fruitful multiplication uh, blessing command. They take that into their own hands and violate God's ordered universe in this particular case. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Verse 32. And so we've got to be wary of that. We can't take God's commands into our own hand. He's got an order and a way to do things. But beyond that, it seems like there is actually a social expectation that was at work to make the daughters feel like their only purpose in life was somehow sexual. Dad specifically had once made it very clear to them that their role in life was sexual. Lot, if you remember from chapter 19, verse 8, Lot had offered them to the town to appease them, like have your way with my daughters, rape these daughters so that they that the messengers can be saved. So society was doing this. Society was communicating a message. Dad did it as well. And I want to be clear that that, that Lot offering them was a sin done to the daughters. It was a sin committed against the daughters by their father and by their society, which was Sodom. So, daughters in the room today, your value is not found in your sexuality or your sex appeal, no matter what has happened to you in the past, no matter what anyone has said or done to you. Your value is found in two things. God created humans in his own image. He created them male and female. He created them, and Jesus died for us all. Our value is not, in, is not found in external things like that, but rather in God. So the daughters chose the way of the world instead of the way of Yahweh. And so sometimes we can get into this attitude as well. Sin is done to me, therefore I will go sin against others. We might not have that explicit thought process, but it comes out in things like, um, you know, I had a student say, we were putting together this whole thing, and it was supposed to be, how would you want to be treated by each other? And she said, if they're mean, I'm mean. And that's this idea. It's the eye for the eye. It's about raising hell and wreaking havoc. And, and if something, if I'm having a bad day, I want to make everybody else's day a bad day. And if somebody's rude to me, then I'll be rude to them. This is not God's way. This is a cycle that will literally never end and will lead to death. Because the way of Yahweh is life, but the way of the world is death. I mean, check out what happens to the descendants in, uh, in verse 36, verse 37. 
Uh, the firstborn bore a son. His name was Moab, father of the Moabites to this day. In verse 38, the younger son, Ben-Ami, became the Ammonites. Both become major adversaries to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people in the rest of the Old Testament. So in some ways, this seems like biblical trash talk. Uh, it's like an ancient Near Eastern biblical your mama joke to the adversaries who were the Moabites. Just ponder that one. Just take that home and ponder it. I'm not going to explain. But a, a biblical your mama joke. But it, it's, yes, it's very serious. The Moabites appear later in the Torah. They're in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 25. We're not going to turn there. We're not going to read it. I have one verse uh, that we could put up. Uh, in chapter 25, verse 1, the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. The generational sin that had happened all the way back from Sodom had never been taken care of, replicated in the daughters, it, and then continues to the point where Israel meets them back up and begin to whore with the daughters of Moab. This is generational sin left un, untreated. Uh, in our small group on Monday, Logan said this. She's celebrating with her family. Her birthday was yesterday, so she's celebrating with her family in Bolivar. She said this. This is what happens when you raise your children in Sodom. So, got to watch for it. What are we doing? Where are we raising our children? The lifestyle of sin will be repeated for generations because of the example parents set for their children for how to live. The lifestyle of sin will be repeated for generations because of the example parents set for their children on how to live. Who we are, what we do. And we hear it all the time in school. Well, my mama told me, you know, how to respond to a conflict. Well, my mama told me just to hit him. Okay, well, that's going to lead to its own set of problems. So that's where we leave Lot. I was like, that's bleak, Sean. Yeah, just hang on. All right, so... It doesn't get better for a while. Let's go check up on Abraham in chapter 20. This is our text, but I can't read the whole thing for time's sake, so read it when you get home. But we'll start in verse 1. We're actually going to take a field trip through uh, the generations here. Chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Okay, so that's where he's at. He's not like in the promised land. He's like around it. He's traveling around doing some stuff. And then verse 2, And Abraham said of, his, uh, said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So he's done this before. Abraham has done this before. He will lie about his wife's identity to save his own skin. He's done that before. Uh, it's a habit of really sinning against his wife, putting her into precarious situations, to put it lightly. Happens back in Genesis chapter 12 when they went down to Egypt. Pharaoh was like, who's that hottie? That's my 75-year-old wife. Uh, that's my 75-year-old sister. Um, so he tells her to say, so that his life may be spared. He's trying to save his own skin. 
We get a little more detail for why he's saying this in verse 11 of chapter 20. Abraham said, I did it. See, because Abimelech actually like finds out. They're like hanging out and he's like, wait, this isn't your sister. This is your wife. Um, And so he finds out, confronts Abraham. And then in verse 11, Abraham explains why he did it. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. Uh, And she became my wife when God caused me to wander from my house and said, this is the kindness you must do to me. All right, so check this out. We've heard about it once other time before this. But check out at the very end of um, verse, where are we at, 12? No, verse 13. Uh, This kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. We hear about it the first time. We hear about it this time. But every place they go, they start with this lie. He treats Sarah as a pawn in his political game, a tool to preserve his life and maybe benefit from it. He benefits from it a lot. He benefits from it here. Uh, In verse 16, for her, uh, no, sorry, verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. The same thing happened in chapter 12, verse 16. Pharaoh loaded him down with a whole bunch of goods because of this situation. And this really bothered me. Why does the liar get, or why does the lying get Abraham an advantage? But you've got to be careful when you're reading the Bible the Bible's not like a simple book. I mean, it is a simple book, but it's not a simple book. There's clues that come later, and there's big things that have to be taken from it. This is, again, oh, maybe if I lie about my wife, I'll get a lot of sheep or whatever the 21st century equivalent. I'll get a lot of, um, like, uh, Bitcoin or something downloaded to my account. So in both cases, he comes out ahead. It was the same lie for the same purpose with the same result. So why not repeat it? He sinned against, in this case, it's a question of who did he sin against? He has sinned against Abimelech, the king, by judging him without actually knowing him. Look at verse 11. We've got it. I've trimmed it all the way down. He says in verse 11, I thought, I thought. Abraham said, I did it because I thought. There was no fear of God. He thought so. Remember how God went personally down to Sodom to investigate the outcry and make sure before he brought judgment on them? That's the all-knowing, all-powerful God. And he is, he's going, he's sending messengers down to look at Sodom to make sure. And here Abraham is, I thought. He didn't know. He didn't investigate. He just judged Abimelech and his people based on fear. His judgment, his his judging stick, his measuring stick was not truth, but was fear. I thought there was no fear of God in this place. So we've got another warning here about judging people. We had better know and investigate before we're judging people based on rumors or assumptions. 
And let me tell you something. All of our judgments are prejudgments because we will never have full and complete information about a person's situation. Why are they mean to me? Because they're a jerk. I thought they were a jerk, so I was mean to them back. We can't do that. We never, God knows all. He goes and checks. We know nothing. Don't check. And we've got to be careful making judgments about people. But, again, the problem goes deeper than just this one-time sin. This is a generational sin persisting thing. Let's go to, just flip over in your Bible to chapter 26. It's going to blow your minds. The Bible has a tendency to do this. I thought, <laughs> I thought I knew. <laughs> I thought I knew God. <laughs> Always more. Verse 1, we'll read a big chunk here and then just talk about part of it. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac, okay, so Isaac is Abraham's son. Where we are, he hasn't been born yet, but we just skipped a couple decades. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Hey, we were just there. And the Lord appeared to him and said uh, a bunch of stuff. Do not go to Egypt. Dwell in the land which, there's a whole bunch of God doing things here. I will tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For you and your offspring, I will give all these things, all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and will give you, and I will give you uh, your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar, where Abraham just was. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, uh oh you get caught, like, read the Bible slowly, okay? And you know, when they asked him about his wife, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, you kind of like, please don't, please don't, please don't. The, the scene has been set in our minds. When they asked him about his wife, he said, don't do it, Isaac, don't do it, Isaac. He did it. She is my sister. Huh. Why? For he feared. For he feared to say, my wife, then in the ESV, thinking. This is what men get for thinking. I thought there'd be more like women, like, what, hey, man, you know, like, just quit. You know? So this is what they give for thinking. He was thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was a hottie. I don't know what your translation said. That was my paraphrase. The same thing again. Please notice, thinking is not actually the sin here. Thinking is not like, oh, Sean told me this this morning, like, I need to stop thinking. That is not the problem. But what is our thinking based on? Is our thinking based on fear or truth? God or people? Fear makes us hypocrites and fear makes us stupid. It will do that every single time. Fear will make us do things we know are not right to do. I've got no business jumping up on a chair. But when I see that spider, Bobby's not here so I can pick on her. I am jumping up on a chair. That's not a good idea. 
that chair has wheels, you are going down, you know. So sudden bit of extra human agility when we get the fear going. But fear causes a problem. It's not thinking that's the problem. It's thinking without knowing. It's thinking uh, in fear. Well, maybe uh, maybe it was just him. So actually, let's not go there yet. So the son, in the same way, is sinning against the same king. Is Isaac, son of Abraham, sinning against Abimelech, doing the exact same thing. Now imagine with me for a second, children who repeat the exact same mistakes as their parents. (laughs) Well, what kind of people are they? And Isaac actually prospers after after this event as well. Let's go on. Let's just keep a little family tree history. Flip over to chapter 27. Uh, this is, uh, Isaac now has a son, two sons. One is Esau, one is Jacob. They're both like handsome young men. Esau's got some red hair and he's a real strong fit guy. Jacob, not so much, but he's a con man. Jacob is a con man. And we'll read that in verse 18. He's Jacob is trying to get the blessing from his brother. So actually let's just for sake of time, look at, uh, verse 24. He here is uh, uh, Jacob. And Jacob is old by this point and blind. He says, are you really my son Esau? Jacob answered, I am. He lies again to get the blessing. Lying about who you are in order to gain a blessing is running in this family. Generational sin. Then Jacob, we're not going to turn there, but Jacob, the con man, gets lied to by his own sons. Jacob had like 12 sons, and he liked this one named Joseph a whole lot. It made the others really jealous, so they lied to their dad about killing him. Lying to gain a blessing. See, this is the problem of sin. And we think about sin most, of, most often as sin that I do. Sin done by you. So Lot sinned. The daughters sinned. Abraham sinned. Isaac sinned. Jacob sinned. They all sinned. They committed sin done by them. But there's also a sin here that is done to them. A sin committed against them. A a sin done, in our case, to us. The daughters were sinned against by their fathers. Abimelech was sinned against twice by father, by son. Isaac was sinned against. Esau was sinned against by by, uh, Jacob who wanted to steal the blessing. Joseph was sinned against by his brothers. We don't often think of this, the sin against or the sin done to a person. There's also a third category, the sin done around a person. This is like the effect of Sodom on Lot. Lot knew better, presumably, but the sin done around him begins to affect him and his family and the sins that they will commit. Plus, the sin seems to be getting worse. There's a whole generational thing here. Sexual immorality, that is like having sex to solve our problems. Lying, cheating, sexism and the objectification of women, favoritism, sibling sibling rivalry. We sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons were all screwed up. These, this is messed up stuff. 
And we've got to be careful because we mirror and mimic the pattern of, yes, our family of origin and our culture for better or worse. We mimic and mirror the patterns of our families of origin or our culture for better or worse. Sin has consequences for generations. Sin runs in the family, and sin can be passed on collectively or through culture. Just quickly touch on these. Sin has consequences for the generations. We learn our values from observing our parents and their behaviors. And this is freaking me out, too. If you're freaked out right now, that's okay. We won't stay here. But let's just be freaked out for a minute. We learn our values from observing our parents. Children experience the good and the bad. We'll focus on the bad for a bit here. Children experience the effects of trauma for the rest of their life. If, if there is no loving support system to help them work through the trauma, then it will be expressed in really negative ways as they get older. This is, we know that. We know that. We think about, you know, soldiers returning home with post-traumatic stress disorder. That is capital T trauma. Uh, you know, unexpected death of a loved one can be big T trauma. Uh, divorce, all kinds of things can be capital T trauma. We have little, like, lowercase t traumas that would, like, breakups and things like that that would be smaller. But they all affect us. The reputation, and so that... That carries with a person through their life. And we might not even notice how that exhibits itself later in life. And we forget how that trauma, we learn to cope with the trauma. And so we're just dealing with it. But also reputation and family name follows us. When I was growing up, uh, I had an older brother. And so going through middle school, you know, I'd have a teacher that he had and they would say it. They'd say, oh, you're Brad's brother. Oh, you're Brad's brother. Oh, you're Brad's brother. Yeah, so like, Brad and I are very different. I love my brother. Uh, we are very different people, though. And so, but our name carries on. That older brother, he paved the course, uh, and it carries on. And so what does it mean now to be a Mainz? You know, what does it mean to just fill in the family name there? What does it mean to do that? And for generations, that can matter. Sin also runs in the family. We're all born into sin. No one is a blank slate. And then we learn to sin and how to sin through experience. And we pass on both genetic and behavioral traits. And we know this. We have some cliches. So a little audience participation here. Finish the, cl the clause for me because, like, we know these things. Like father-like, like mother-like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We know these things. We know that it's going to be this way. And we say things like, I'll never be like my parents. And then one day you notice your fingers wagging and you, you whoa, ah, why do you do? I can't wag my finger. My mom was not a finger wagger, I guess. Uh, and we notice our finger is wagging just like mom's. And we say to ourselves, oh, no, I become just like my mother or father. Children raised with traumatic experiences will, as I said, exhibit those signs of trauma. Raised in a family where alcoholism is prevalent, uh, that will, is more likely for 
children. Uh, poverty is cyclical as well. The effects of divorce, sexual abuse, other addictions, all have impacts on children as they grow up and may, may have an impact on us. So if you're you know, triggered this morning, you're a heightened sense of awareness and you're really mad at me for saying all these things, just hang on. Because I'm not talking about blame shifting here. I'm not saying to the person who has been sinned against, like those daughters, I wouldn't say like, oh, your sin is justified because of what your father did. No way. There's no blame shifting here. They are responsible for their actions. Nor are we talking about a victim mentality and that this is just the way I am because of all the bad things that have happened to me. And that is somehow permission to continue to be um, a jerk or an alcoholic or whatever the problem is as a result of the past sin that has been done to us. We are responsible for our actions, just like the daughters of Lot were. And then also sin can be passed on collectively through culture. The daughters identified the way of the world in the choice that they were making. There's no man to come into us according to the manner of all the earth. They chose a path. A path. And it doesn't matter how much we try to shelter our children from it. The way of the world is an ever-present opponent to the way of Yahweh. Always is there. And I have dug a pretty huge and deep hole here. But there is hope. There is a rope. There is a ladder. There is a way out. There is mercy and freedom from sin waiting for us. Whether it's sin that we've committed or whether it's sin that is done to us or sin that is done around us, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 talks about this. We can put that one up. It's on there. All this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a process of making relationships right again, just simply stated, to make a relationship right again. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The daughters chose the way of the world. But Abimelech, this is the thing for me. I was like, I really struggle with why is Abraham getting a blessing out of this? Abimelech actually chooses to reconcile with the persons who sinned against him. Twice he will meet with Abraham and talk it out. He meets with Isaac and he talks it out. Esau chose to reconcile with Jacob. Joseph chooses to reconcile with his brothers and he could just put them all in prison and kill them all. He chose to reconcile. And God chooses to reconcile with us while we were still his enemies, as it says in Romans 5.10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That these sins committed to us, around us, or by us do not define who we are. 
We get stuck sometimes in our culture looking at the past and saying, that's me. That's who I am is the past form. And the present is just a mirror or a extrapolation of the past. But as Christians, we're not defined by our past person. We're defined by the future person. We're defined by Jesus and who he is. We are not defined by our sin. See, Jesus saves us. We are saved by his life from what? All sin. 1 John 2, 2, I've got that one as well. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I read, I was like, do we have that, Al? We can get 1 John 2, 2 up there. The propitiation. I had to look that up in another translation. The good news translation. And Christ himself is the means by which our sins are forgiven. We cannot forgive our own sins. We can't overcome a past of hurt and trauma. We can't save ourselves from the sins that we commit. We can't save the world from destroying itself. I don't have that power. You don't have that power. Jesus himself in Galatians 1.4, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. The present evil age would be the sin done around us. It's the sin done to us. We live in a world of sin. Where hopefully we're no longer sinning anymore. As blood-bought believers in Christ, baptized in His Spirit, that we're not sinning anymore. I hope that's you. I'm still working on my sanctification. Me and the Holy Spirit are working that one out. But if you're perfect, the sin will still happen to you, and it still happens around us. But check this out in Revelation 7, 9. I love the book of Revelation. After this, we got that down? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Well, who are these people? Verse 14. They are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They, he washed, uh, then he washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will check this out, shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some of us have gone through already great tribulation. We've been through it. We've been through it. The hurt that was done to us, nobody, nobody asks for that. It's out of our control. The pain of this life that happens to us, even as children, no one asks for that. And we've been through great tribulation Sin done to you, sins done around you. But Jesus, who sits on the throne, will shelter you 
with his presence and wipe away every tear from your eye. Then we can be more than a conqueror. Then in his presence, we can grow to who we were truly meant to be. We're all hit by sin at different levels. Yes, some of us have lived good lives and the sin done against us was, you know, we got scolded too harshly or, you know, somebody accused us of something wrong and we've lived a pretty sheltered life, but some have been through the ringer already. And this is where we'll close. Jackson, if you want to come and just play quietly, we're in with a time of reflection and prayer. What do we do with this? John, what do we do with this? Broke my heart. This is really heavy. I came for inspiration. We hopefully got the inspiration. There is a way out. Jesus is our way out. We do need to identify the effects of family and the past and our present in our lives. And the thing is, we'll hold on to it sometimes because that's who we are. I am defined by this thing that happened to me. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Step one, we need to maybe forgive some people who did some really horrible things. And that's super hard, but God is asking us, let it go. Let it go. Come through, stand before my throne or humble yourself before my throne and forgive. How can I forgive them? God has mercy. God has mercy, not just for us, but for them as well. We can let go of our anger and let go of our hate. The second thing I think we need to realize is we need to realize that our behaviors, our actions have consequences right now. And we need to address the potential future consequences for the sins that we are committing against others right now. That we're doing things. Maybe it's not gross abuse, but maybe it's like just cold shoulders and I'm going to ignore people and I'm going to be rude and I'm going to post hateful things and I'm just going to, and we're going to vent our anger and our rage. What effect will that have on people in the future? And I'm saying, let that go. God is calling for us to seek forgiveness and maybe, and definitely, not maybe, seek forgiveness with God and then seek reconciliation with people as much as is possible for you. Make right any wrongs that you know you have done or that you are doing. Make them right because we are ambassadors for Christ. We can't stand as ambassadors for Christ and still be hurting people. Because then we're ambassadors for somebody else. If not ourselves, then worths. And we need to humble ourselves before the throne of God and come into his presence. The third thing as we're working through this is live in a community that loves you and supports your walk in the way of Yahweh. Not the way of the world. We know that trauma happens. PTSD happens, but post-traumatic growth is also a possibility. Psychologists have identified it already. We knew it as Christians a long time ago. A loving, supporting community. We call them churches. Help people grow through traumatic situations. They don't have to live in the junk anymore. We can work through it together, loving each other in a healthy, loving relationship to help them make sense of their lives. 
Hopefully we as a church can do that without judgment. This is where it goes back to, we don't know. We don't know what people have gone through. So quit judging them and start loving them. Our goal in this church is to love people as they become more and more like Jesus. We aren't going to be perfect. No one is perfect. But this is what we do. So today as we close, just where you are, a time of prayer and reflection, who do you need to forgive from your past or maybe from your present that is holding you back with hurt and pain? Or, or who do you need to seek forgiveness from for current situations where you know you're wrong and you need to straighten up? God would be one, but let the Holy Spirit communicate this to you. And that third point was live in a community where you're loved and supported. That's this place. If you want me or others to pray for you, you can stand where you are. You can come forward, but give some indication. You can just grab a neighbor, pray for me. But let us pray for each other in this case. If you just need a quiet time with the Holy Spirit, take that time. This is hard. This is hard stuff. But this will begin the process of healing as the Holy Spirit will work in our lives to deal with some of these things that we've been holding on to for far too long. The curse of sin was broken that day on the cross. All sin. Broken. We don't have to live under its power anymore. That's not just the power to not speed and not lie about people. No, this is a power of sin that, that binds us, that the, the bounds of sin are more than just, oh, good, I don't have to murder people anymore. I don't have to speed anymore. No, this is for real stuff that cuts all the way down into the, who, the heart of who we are. A life that was meant for good but has been marred by sin. Not just sin that we do. That's I think there's so much. This was so big. And it just gives me such hope to know that God, through Jesus, is bigger than that. Bigger than every sin. Bigger than anything that has happened to you and other people that you may know. This is a message of hope. We are not lost in the darkness anymore. We're children of light. And as children of light, we bring light to people. We bring light to people. We bring love. We bring hope. There is freedom, even from the traumas and miseries of sin that people have committed against us or even in the past. God is bigger than that. And he truly, truly, truly wants to set us free. And this is the beginning of a process. Understand that yeah, God will set you free, but the devil's out there and he's going to keep bringing this stuff up and bringing it up and we'll rebuke it in Jesus' name. You've been set free this morning as you pray for God. And, and there's steps where you need to go and take steps still to seek forgiveness and to, and to, and to reconcile relationships with people that have been broken. Because God is a God of reconciliation and we are Christ's ambassadors of God's reconciliation to make relationships right again. So let's pray.